0: Yeah, let's pray together, and then we'll, we'll jump right in. Father, we love you. Uh, we thank you uh, that by your grace you move toward us uh, first, and you initiate this gracious rescuing work uh, throughout your story uh, to draw us into this new humanity that you're making and to draw the rest of your creation into this renewal project. Um, that you are a God who is ever faithful, and your covenant is a testimony to that, Uh, Your loving kindness uh, is something that we we, uh, long to remember well, uh, that we might walk as your faithful witnesses in the world, bearing your image uh, as uh, stewards of of what you've given us. It is a blessing to know you, God, and we uh, just ask for you to be with us tonight, uh, to teach us, um, and to help us to walk in your ways. Uh, we pray all this in the precious name of Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Covenant. Life with God and life for God. To, to begin just with an introduction of this, uh, what is a central theme, some people would argue as the central th- theme of the scripture, I wanted to, to take, a, take a few minutes to just notice a few key things. The first of which is choice. The idea is that God chooses... The cultural notion of covenant, barit, in Hebrew, as the way to describe and frame his relationship to Israel, and later the church. The reason why I want to start with choice, uh, I feel like it's good to acknowledge this, and I think it's an arresting type of acknowledgement. What I mean by that is that uh, for us, because covenant is perhaps so unfamiliar, uh, it can be easy to dismiss it as something that we don't really need to know much about. But God chose it which should give us pause for reflection, that this is uh, something that God has put much weight on, as something that he's invited us in to reflect upon, to live into. This covenant is, is in essence, the relational matrix that exists between God and Israel and then later the church. By that, I just mean it's like everything happens within the covenant. That's how central it is. Uh, this choice that God has made making to choose covenant, the word covenant and this framework, this relationship is also a reminder that God works inside of history, not outside of it. So it's a God who comes to us in the context of our everyday life of the everyday life of people from a long time ago. Uh, and I think this is really a significant and helpful reminder. So choice and then centrality covenant is at the heart of the story and it serves as a hinges upon which the story turns and progresses. So from a numerical standpoint, Covenant is uh, mentioned around 300 times, maybe a few over that in the Old Testament. And it's clearly a central theme, not simply because it's talked about a lot. I'm sure there are a number of words that occur often. Josh could probably give us some quick queries with his Logos software. Uh, We could find a lot of words that are frequently mentioned, but that doesn't always mean they're super important. But Covenant itself serves as the framework for the interaction between God and his people. Uh, To give maybe one example of how central this is and how uh, key it is in terms of uh, the story itself and how it's progressing. So some books that I feel like are maybe awkward to us, um, they feel, uh, we feel disconnected from them, or I can. Joshua through Kings. uh, It's like this historical section that just feels like, a weirdness that you kind of want to get rushed through if you're in a Bible reading plan. But those books are reflecting on the Mosaic covenant through the lens of Deuteronomy. So what I'm, what I'm saying is that like, there's a whole giant chunk of Scripture that all it's doing is reflecting on this covenant God made at Sinai with his people and with Moses there. And that whole chunk of their history is just a reflection on the degree of their faithfulness to the covenant that was made then. So this enormous portion of scripture, deeply tied, rooted to the covenant. The covenant is central. God chose it. Covenant is also contextual. So covenants would have been familiar in, in the ancient world uh, as a standard way of creating a firm arrangement between two parties. Covenant for us is uh, a little foreign. The closest thing we have is probably marriage, uh, but even the way that we treat that today is not really reflective of the way that they would have thought about covenants then uh the firmness of our covenant arrangement in terms of a marriage is not so firm at all now it's pretty easy to get out of but covenants then would not have been easy they would have been very serious uh, and very firm obligations or arrangements between two parties and some so this would involve different uh parties sometimes individuals uh, with nations, sometimes gods and peoples, kings and world kingdoms, and their subject nations, like how are we going to relate to one another? These these people would have been making arrangements through covenant. A uh, Covenant would have been the way that they made sense of that, that they spelled out how they were going to relate to one another. So definition for covenant, and this definition is not... Um, necessarily a a broad definition, but it's more narrow. It's a biblical definition. So it's like, what is the definition of covenant as we encounter it in the Bible? Uh, Not just covenants out there. So covenant in the Bible is God in love binds himself to Israel to restore true humanity in them and to draw the rest of the world into that same renewal. This uh, gives us a good window into what God is up to with his choice of covenant. So why would God choose covenant and make it so central? I think at least a big part of the answer, there are multiple ways, I think, to answer this question faithfully, Uh, but one is God is revealing and accomplishing his purposes through covenant. And then I want to read this quote together uh, with you from William Dumbrell. It's a lot of words, so don't feel like you have to keep up with it all at once. Uh, We're going to kind of unpack it a bit together. So William Dumbrell says, "When God gives a covenant commitment in the Old Testament, this is not only a promise, but also an indication of divine action to be taken in implementing the terms of the promise and the future of humanity and its world." Implicit in Genesis 1:2. The long succession of covenants is indeed God's gracious way of flagging for humanity the future from creation culminating in the new covenant leading to new creation. So the big claim that Wendell Dumbrell is making is that uh, the covenants are revelatory. That is, they're showing what God is up to. So if the definition and the goal of what God is doing is to, in love, bind himself to a people and to draw them into this new humanity and to draw the rest of creation into this renewal project, a part of what the covenants do is show you how he's going to do that. And he's also saying that there is a covenant with creation in the beginning in Genesis 1 and 2, which tells us, uh, which communicates to us, I guess, the goal and the purpose of all the the covenants coming thereafter. So Genesis 1 and 2 is uh, for us, uh, that map of sorts where we, we already anticipate a new creation in which God will rule over his people and his place and they will order their lives according to his will and they will enjoy the fullness of blessing in life in and through him. It's a flagging for humanity of the future from creation culminating in the new covenant leading to new creation. So, I, have, I had the subtitle at the beginning of the lecture, and one of the things that I wanted to focus on uh, is this idea of life with God and life for God. So I, I think both things are, are relevant. They're like two dimensions uh, or two sides of the same coin, maybe, uh, within our understanding of covenant. Uh, covenant is about how God does life with us. So remember that covenant with creation, God is with Adam and Eve in the garden. And then a part of what happens as a consequence of their rebellion is they're removed from the presence of God. And the rest of the covenants are trying to move them back. Uh, That's humanity, Israel, and then the church back into that same space with God. So life with God is central to the covenant. And life for God is also central to the covenant. So God is making these promises, and he's in his grace and in his loving kindness. He's uh, at work redeeming, and he has an expectation then in response to what he has done for his people and how they ought to live. So there's a, an obligation that comes. So there's promise and obligation involved in covenant. And I feel like, it, at least in my experience, uh, that I understood more about life for God. And the emphasis that I heard, at least most clearly, maybe it was, maybe it was my ears and not the speaker's, but the emphasis was on life for God. And even within Missio, I would think that one of the covenants that we're most familiar with is the Abrahamic covenant, because we always use the language of blessed to be a blessing, right? And we really hammer home that idea that we are recipients of God's grace, not so that we can just hold it unto ourselves, but we are recipients of God's grace so that we can extend it to others. We are blessed so that we can be a blessing, that missional thrust which is absolutely true and absolutely there, that life for God. But tonight I wanted to, to take uh, some time to focus on life with God, feeling getting a sense that in our DNA we have a we have a clear sense, a clear understanding of life for God. So we're gonna take some time to try to drill down into how the covenants, each one of them and then all together are pushing us toward this life with God, how we might learn from that and in some sense be. Uh, made more into the likeness of Christ, uh, live into this renewal project that God has begun. So we had read that D'Umbrell quote, and he says that Genesis 1-2 is the model for the future goal, namely that God is going to rule as king in the midst of his people in the new creation. So that's that's there present in Genesis 1 and 2. And and this is the model, this is the goal, this is where everything's headed. And so all the covenants are kind of moving us along in that way. Uh, Knowing that is the case, I wanted you guys to turn in groups of three or four, uh, if you're online, Kevin may, I'll give him some time, put you in some breakout rooms uh, so that you guys can do the same. But we're gonna turn, find a couple people to chat with. I want you to talk about how is life with God and for God depicted and Genesis one and two. You're welcome to open the Bible and check there, but most of you are probably familiar enough with the story that you could also uh, shoot from the hip a bit as well. But I want a chance to kind of reflect on those two things uh, together. Kevin's got a mic that he's gonna hand to folks as they share so that the people online can also hear what you're saying. Uh, What's your name? Mike, thanks for sharing. Mike was saying that uh, life with God in the beginning wasn't fractured or broken, there was an integration between God and humans and all creation. If I fairly represented him,
1: I think. group effort from our group uh, was the idea of like for God being more like bound in that were they were in His image, and there's mm. that representation piece. And just as they went about whatever it is they were doing, like there were they were in God's image, and there wasn't that that brokenness. And so there was the, always that for him just in
0: the midst of their being. Thanks, Josh.
2: (laughs) I was just thinking, I don't know exactly how to say it, but when we do the story of God, the story form way, like in that, whenever we do the discussion, like what do you notice about God? What do you learn about God? After that first story, every time I do it, somebody says something like, I never thought about it this way. Like he's there with them, like he's present somehow. I always think I'm like far away and mm. but, like you just get this sense he's there present, creatively with them. So I don't know, I don't know exactly how to put words to it, but it's like, it always hits someone and then it re- hits me again. Like I just don't normally think about it that, like how much he's with, he's present in the create, even in the creation process.
0: In our group. It was a big one. Um, it was, uh, but just said how it was like present with like that idea of being present with God, but not just like with his word or with inanimate creation or things like that. Like as if his presence had to hover above though, that was there too. But
2: like that physical presence, there was a, a reality that it was known experienced walking with them in the cool of the day idea where it would just be, yeah, a little mm-hmm. bit different than reading a Bible.
0: And so, yeah, there's definitely gravity there. So you guys are uh, already getting at a number of these things that are on, on my list as well. I, in the beginning, my, all things are ordered by God. Uh, we are co-rulers with God. We're image bearers, as Josh mentioned. Uh, Eden is pictured as a sanctuary, uh, a place where all of life is worship. Uh, there's a walking with God, which has a gravity and a, uh, almost a foreignness to us that's Christmas mission. There's trust between Adam and Eve. There's trust between Adam and God, Eve and God. There's trust between Adam and the animals. Uh, There's provision. God is caring for them and their every need is uh, supplied. This is a part of what life looked like in that Genesis one and two world before it was ruptured, before it was undone by rebellion. And from there on the covenant is God's way of restoring humanity and all of creation to this original intent that we were just talking about with one another and beyond so there's a sense in which the story is moving not just back to the same spot but something that's even a bit better than that like a good movie if you're watching and you're paying attention the opening scene and the closing scene will be almost the same except that at the closing scene whatever problem is presented through the story will then have been resolved and the closing scene will therefore be better than where the story had started. And the same way, and really those stories are, are uh taking their their model from the Bible. So uh this story has a has that opening scene in which things are really good, and then there's a problem, and things kind of go crazy, and God is at work res- doing this restoration renewal project, and then things are brought to an even better place and new creation. So there is this covenant with creation that is actually uh really representative of one covenant that god makes but with that one covenant comes the historical unfolding of many covenants i don't know we don't have that up there but so the idea is that there's really only one covenant and that all the others are subsumed underneath the first so the covenant with creation is, is the big one, and all the rest fit inside of it, and all of the rest are a means of movement toward the goal of new creation. So just want to hopefully, I feel like, hammer home that unity and that continuity there in God's, uh, God's work, and then take a glimpse at how the covenants, plural, unfolded through history. The first is with Noah, and if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn there or your iPhone, It's in Genesis 6. We won't spend much time, but I'll just kind of make mention of where things are. Uh, This is rooted in the scriptures. This is a reflection upon God's word and covenant, which is a central theme within his word. So in Genesis chapter 6, verse uh, 17, 18. Verse 17, he says, I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark. You and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. Now, This, in verse 18, is the first mention of the word barit, which is covenant. Uh, and it's mentioned again in chapter 9, uh, verse Nine, nine, nine. I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you. So the covenant is not just with Noah and his family, but it's all of creation, all the creatures that were with him. The birds, the livestock, all the wild animals, all they, those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. So Genesis 6 and 9 places where God talks about establishing this covenant with Noah. Now a couple of things that I want to note highlight. So first this covenant with Noah is predicated on God's grace and deliverance of Noah. So the first thing is about what God is doing to save Noah. And then after after that essentially is this forming of an arrangement remember that uh, agreement between two parties of this promise that God is making with him and his family and with all of creation, but it's predicated on God's grace and what God does to initiate that uh, salvation that he provides both for Noah and for all of creation. There's a commitment to the human and non-human creation that we've looked at already. And there's the preservation at, at the end there in chapter nine that we read preservation of all creation by the removing of the threat of further calamity, no more flood and the way that the world had just experienced judgment. Now, in this particular covenant uh, life with god centers on enjoying his protection and provision in order to begin again if you notice in 9 1 god says to noah there it says then god blessed noah and his sons, saying to them be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth does that sound familiar the same instruction that he has given to adam and eve he now gives to noah and his family as they begin again under the provision of his protection that God in his grace has promised not to flood the earth and that Noah will be his faithful image bearer in the world. The next covenant is with Abraham. And in Genesis 12, we mentioned earlier, 12:1 through 3, the Lord said to Abraham, leave your country, your people and your father's household and go to the land, I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, the covenant with Abraham also comes up in chapter 15. Again, and then there's also mention of it in 17. So it's kind of, there's a, a number of places where this covenant comes up. In uh, some discussions, like the sign of the covenant with circumcision, in uh, other places, the weird ceremony in chapter 15, where uh, Noah gets, I mean, Noah, Abraham gets these animals and he cuts them in half, and then there's like the fire pot thing that goes through the middle of it. And you're like, what is going on here? So, in the, in the world of covenant, this, this strange story would have made much more sense to them. So, covenant was all, often a blood bond. So, what that meant, or what that means, excuse me, is that there, it was a life or death thing. So, when you enter into this arrangement, if you break the agreement, It will cost you your life. So you say, I promise to do this. You promise to do that. And if either one of us goes astray in that, we sacrifice our very selves. This is what's reflected in the animals being torn in half and God walking through the middle. So the idea is if I don't, if I'm not faithful to this covenant, may I be torn apart, torn in two. I give my life. And God is obligating himself in this covenant ceremony with Abraham. He says, if I'm not faithful to do what I've said to you, tear me in half. So the the grace of God here on on full display. So his gracious calling of Abraham, which echoes creation. So the Lord had said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and hold and go to the nation I show you. So there's a, period of silence, similar uh, maybe to the world that was in in darkness uh, before God spoke into it. So there's this period of silence, and then God speaks to Abraham after all the crazy stuff that happens in Genesis 3 through 11, where the world seems to be falling apart, and it ends in a culmination point of the tower in Babel, where all humanity is kind of uh, rebelling together, and it doesn't seem like there's much hope, and then God calls Abraham. He speaks Uh, in the same way that he spoke in creation. So there's a new creation through his speaking and there's a new nation being made through his speaking to Abraham here. So there's a restored blessing that will come to Abraham and through Abraham to the world. There's a land, a nation, and a great name that's promised to him. And life with God in this covenant centers on trust and the absence of answers. There's something unique about the period of the patriarchs and the name of God. And that is that the name El Shaddai, or God Almighty, was central in this period. And this name referred to God's ability to resolve extreme difficulties between covenant promises and covenant circumstances. So if you think back to Abraham's story, uh, the promise is many, like many people's a big nation, right? That's like the first one. But the question always for him is, how is this going to be possible? I don't have a son. All I have is Eleazar oh, maybe like we can make this work, him and Sarah make the decision to try to make it work through Hagar. That doesn't work. They're very old. How is it possible for them to have children? So there's all these promises. There's an absence of answers in which Abraham is invited again and again to trust God. That This life with God, this God who's called him out of his land to go into this new land with all these promises that do not seem obtainable centers on trusting him. And El Shaddai is the name that is given to God in this patriarchal period for God Almighty, who can solve the tension between what seems like, hey, you promised this thing, but this is what's actually going on. How how are we going to bridge the gap here? And God proves himself more than capable, for he is God Almighty. The next covenant is the Mosaic or the Sinaitic covenant. That's a fun word to say. Uh, And Exodus chapter nineteen through twenty four it's a little less uh exact um, but it's kind of through that whole stretch so in uh, we'll just read a few verses from nineteen so he says nineteen three nineteen verse, chapter nineteen verse three then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, "This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell." the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are my words that I speak to you, the Israelites. This covenant made with the people of of God, with Israel is predicated on God's grace and deliverance and redemption provided at the Exodus. So the pattern here uh, of, of all my kind of notes or highlights in the covenants, this predicated on God's grace, I just want to focus on the fact that God initiates all of these. It's, it's not that somebody earned it. Uh, Abraham wasn't great, and because of his greatness, he uh, was given all these promise to become a great nation. Greatness was conferred to Abraham as a gift from God. And this identity as a holy, And royal priesthood was conferred to Israel, not because they were great, not because they had lived spectacularly and exemplar lives, but because God in his grace chose them and has given them this promise. And this is the way that God always relates to people, to humanity throughout the story, is that in his grace, he moves toward us and by free gift uh, gives us these promises. So just want to highlight that again. So God binds himself to Israel to use them as the priestly and holy people for the world. So he gives them a vocation and law. And in this covenant, life of God centers on the fulfillment of the divine will as joy. So if you've read Exodus, you know that the law is is big. uh, And it takes up a lot of material in the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy. And then there's a lot of reflection on how are they faithful or not faithful to that law. And this law is centered on God's will. And again, that's taking us back to that Genesis 1-2 model where Adam and Eve were operating in faithfulness to the will of God. And there's uh, this calling for the people of Israel to have a growing understanding, uh, not of an externally imposed law upon them because God is harsh, but because God in his grace and loving kindness has delivered them from Egypt and he has said, I will be your God and you will be my people. The expectation for them then is to order their lives accordingly and to know the divine will as joy. So the, there's not a, a covenant in terms of Deuteronomy, but the book of Deuteronomy focuses a lot on covenant renewal. So it renews the Sinai, Sinai covenant and affirms Israel's vocation and extends law preparing Israel for life in the land. Um, and in this book, uh, and along the way after it, there are many covenant renewals. Uh, What I want to note there is just that this is a part of the significance of covenant is that it it was Israel's way of remembering who they were and what their job was. So in the book of Deuteronomy, there's this equipping for them in terms of you have to remember what God has done for you and who God is. And out from that, you've received this identity as a holy and royal priesthood. And from that flows this Vocation, this role that you have to be a blessing to the world around you. And that's always through covenant renewal. When they get kind of off course, it was like, okay, remember the covenant. Remember who we are. Remember uh, what we're to do because of who God is and what he's done. So there's a, a linking between current obedience to former covenant history or redemptive acts. What do I mean by that? This should be more familiar to us. So in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is telling them, or someone else if you don't think it's Moses, uh, they're being instructed to obey in their current context, not because they've experienced an immediate covenant uh, or redemptive moment, but because they're looking back on what? They're looking back on the Exodus, what God did for them and delivering them as slaves from Egypt. In the same way that you and I are instructed to live in obedience to God currently, because we are looking back on God's covenant act in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So we look back and we go, this is what God has done to deliver us, to save us, to make us His new humanity. Therefore we obey. And so this is part of what uh, the, the function of the book of Deuteronomy is. And in this book, life with God centers on remembering. So remembering that covenant history, how God has loved them and cared for them and, redeem them, and responding to that loving kindness. The question is always, are you going to be a covenant keeper or covenant breaker? Then the Davidic covenant is God's promise to restore God's rule through David, uh, or through a Davidic king, excuse me. That's 2 Samuel 7. You can flip there. 11 through 16. Oh yeah, yeah, at the end of midway point of eleven, the Lord declares to you that the Lord Himself will establish a house for you when your days are over and in rest and you rest with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish His kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for My name, and I will establish the throne of His kingdom forever. I'll stop there. And the the word barit or covenant doesn't appear in this passage. But the exposition, which is just a word for the explanation of what God was up to in this passage, happens a couple times, a couple different places in Psalm. In the book of Psalms, I think 83 and one something that I can't remember. Uh, but in that Psalm, this particular moment is referred to as God making a covenant with David. Uh, so even though we don't see the word there. So life with God centers on submitting to God's leadership in this covenant. So the invitation for the people of Israel is, David is the mediator of of God's rule. You are to follow him as he is uh, faithfully implementing what God would want. And then lastly, the new covenant. So in the prophetic books, there comes this promise of a better covenant that remembers sin no more and plants the law in the hearts of God's people. One example of this would be Jeremiah 31. I think it's 31, 31. the time is coming declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah it will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant though I was a husband to them declares the Lord This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their hearts and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord because they will know me. And in this new covenant, life with God centers on union with Christ. And the gospel of Luke uh, chapter 22, Jesus inaugurates this new covenant. When he says, so I'll, I'll read a little of the context. And he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this is the cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So this new covenant inaugurated in Jesus in this new covenant, life with God centers on union with Christ. And then at the bottom, I just have a list of some of the ways that Christ himself has fulfilled all the other covenants to show uh, yeah, how God has worked this out through the person of Jesus. So Christ submits to God's leadership and is God's anointed leader. Jesus is son of Abraham, son of David, son of God. So the, in the Davidic covenant, there's this prefiguring of how God's rule will be mediated. There will be a human intermediary. And then this is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then Christ delights in doing life with God by fulfilling his will. Remember when he's tempted by Satan, uh, and Satan tempts him with the bread at first. And Jesus says, I, I have bread that you don't I have, uh, excuse me, man shall not live by bread alone. Getting a couple passages mixed together. Uh, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And this idea that there's this commitment to the divine will as joy, as a son who delights in his father and the and the way that he's called him to live. And Christ takes on the covenant curse. So remember we had talked about if the covenant is broken, there's a severe consequence, namely that someone gives their life as a consequence. And Christ takes that on, he takes on the covenant curse, by, so that we might enjoy the covenant blessings. That is, we broke the covenant and should have paid the penalty that we embraced but we didn't because christ himself did Uh, and this is uh, the wonder and beauty of the uniqueness of god's covenant with people uh, as especially as it's contrasted with other nations so their kings would have been pretty ruthless with if a, a big king says to a little king this is how we're going to relate to one another and then it was broken it just would have meant the elimination or a lot of destruction for that little kingdom to correct what had gone wrong. So basically death and destruction to correct the thing. And the, the little kingdom would have experienced that. But then in the case with the covenant with God, God is king. And we are in the place of the little kingdom and deserved that death, deserve that uh, penalty. But he took our place. He took on the covenant curse because he's gracious and loving and kind. And he desires... Us to do life with him and life for him. So there are a couple of things, uh, characteristics of covenants in the Bible uh, that are just kind of true of all of them that I think are helpful to, to sum things up and explore together at the end. So two sides of the covenant, promise and obligation. So God makes a promise, and then there's an obligation in response to that promise. Now promises are neither guarantees nor offers. This is a common misconception in evangelical circles that, oh, God said, this, this is my promise. This is what will happen. That will happen no matter what. But that's not what we see in the scriptures. Promises are God's provision to be taken hold of by faith and lived out in obedience. Example, the promised land. Abraham and then Israel, they're promised this land in which they are to occupy and live and enjoy this life with God and God's gonna take care of their enemies, they're gonna be set up in this place. But that promise is to be taken hold of by faith and lived out in obedience. That is to say, if they are faithful to God and the obligations for which they signed up in this covenant relationship, they'll keep the land. And if not, they'll get booted out. And what happens uh, is that inevitably, they, they do fail to keep the covenant and exile. The people of God are exiled from this land, from their land. So promises are not guarantees. It's not, you will always get this, no matter what you do, no matter how you live. They're to be taken hold of by faith and lived out in obedience, nor are they offers. It's not like a dinner that's prepared and someone says, you come and get it. It doesn't work that way. In this covenant relationship, there's always covenant response are we going to be covenant keepers or covenant breakers? This is the question that, that looms in every every covenant covenant agreement that takes place. How is this going to work out? Are they going to keep the covenant? Or are they going to break the covenant? And after you go for a while, you tend to get the idea, or you, you tend to get a feeling that they are inevitably going to break the covenant. Uh, fortunately, God and his grace and loving kindness uh, makes a way for us to be covenant keepers in that new covenant, right? There's something qualitatively different about it uh, from the old, namely that we're able because of Christ to keep it, not because we're faithfully obedient, but because in Christ we are recipients of his faithfulness. His faithfulness is credited as our own. So are we going to be covenant keepers or covenant breakers? and covenant demands total allegiance to God so when whenever they enter into this relationship with God, uh, there's not just part of their lives that's being subject to this relationship, to this agreement, this arrangement, but it's all of their lives. It's total obedience, it's total allegiance. And that's worked out in a number of different ways. That, that calls faith, that calls for faith, that calls for obedience, that calls for love and trust. There's so many uh, ways of talking about how uh, we are to be loyal to God as his people. So what are some of the implications for today? first thing that comes to mind for me is uh, covenant imagination, or imagination cultivation. Uh, There's a sense in which all of life and all of their experience is viewed through the lens of this relationship with God. There's nothing outside of that. That's pretty evident in the model, right? So in Genesis 1-2, for Adam and Eve, conceptually, there would have been no way of imagining anything outside of this life with God and life for God, impossible. And then the the movement historically is for covenant to at least help us try to get to the same place, so to speak, where we're thinking about this life with God and for God as the total framework uh, for all things that are taking place. Uh, I think a helpful way of talking about it is covenantal shoes. So if you have, if you were, this is is, is going to be helpful, I hope. Uh, We'll see. It'll it'll at least be somewhat sticky. The response is like, I'm intrigued now. You said covenantal shoes. I was getting lost in the Abrahamic thing that was going on, but covenantal shoes, that's interesting. Uh, Get a fresh pair on Amazon. No, they are not for sale. Uh, So if you work on your feet or if you do some kind of unique task, there are probably shoes that you have uh, to do that in. So for me, the way that I I experienced this. I have have a small landscape company and I have work boots that I wear every day as a part of my job. And my job feels like it's done. I feel like I'm out of work when I take my shoes off. It's like, oh, now I'm no longer working. But God wants us to wear our covenantal shoes all the time. So that when you're eating a meal, when you're doing your work, when you're watching a movie together, when you're parenting your children, whatever it is that you're doing, you're doing that as his people and as he is your God. You're wearing your covenantal shoes. I'm going to give another example of um, how God was helping his people think about every day as a day that's like with him and for him. And that's Sabbath. Sabbath. So Sabbath communicates God's rule over creation. Remember in the beginning, God himself rests. And this is a pattern that he sets up for all of humanity uh, and for Israel. And this Sabbath day creates an awareness of our responsibilities every day as God's people. So if you take this one day to remember, to remind yourself who you are, what story you're a part of, who your God is, what he's done, the the point of that is that every day after that you would be living like in light of those realities like that covenantal imagination happens through practices like the sabbath number two communion with god is prioritized not privatized or spiritualized what what does that mean so what the angle that we are taking is to focus a lot more on the life with God in terms of covenant. And I think that's prioritized. I, I don't know that you can really separate life for and with, uh, God, but it does seem like the first thing that happens is that God establishes this relationship with a people whom he saves, he delivers, he's, re- he's redeeming by his grace. And then he gives them this vocation and this task. Okay. That, that they're to be for Israel, a light to the nations, this holy and royal priesthood that comes after their deliverance from Egypt. So communion is first, this transformational experience of God's grace happens first. And then as you're being made new by God, you can extend this newness, this life into the world. So that's prioritized. And it's not privatized. That means it's not like just all to myself. It's with others. It's with God, but it's also with others. Um, And it's not spiritualized. In my experience, uh, as an evangelical and a Baptist context, I feel like what little I knew about life with God was about something I did with God in my mind or in my heart. But in the biblical story, life with God is in your body, and it's in your body with other people's in their bodies. That might sound like a weird thing to say, but I feel pretty confident that most of you have an acute sense of how important it is to be with others in your body. You've been on enough Zoom meetings and Zoom other things that, and praise be to God that there's Zoom, because there would be a lot of fallout if we didn't have Zoom. It's a good gift. I'm not, I'm not knocking it. But it's not the same as being with somebody. You and I want to be with our friends, with our family, with Uh, the people that we enjoy doing life together with. And God wants to be with us. And there's this longing in us, uh, however small it may be at times, for us to be with him in our bodies. And I'm not an expert on what that looks like. Like I said, my history is that I don't know a lot about that. So we need help from whoever is here, whoever's listening online. If you have helpful insight for how to do that, I think that'd be super helpful for us. How do we do that in our bodies? So maybe uh, one thing to note in regard to this uh, as like maybe a practice that could be helpful. So we had talked about Eden was pictured as a sanctuary in the beginning. Or I just mentioned it and of may, may have not landed, but there's, two words to describe the task that's given to all of humanity in the persons of Adam and Eve. In Hebrew, the words are avad and shamar. Avad means to work till cultivate the ground. And shamar means to keep, guard, and preserve. These are like the two dimensions of the task that Adam and Eve have been given in creation. They're to, cre- they're to create things, cultivate things. They're to work the ground, make it fruitful. They're also So to guard things, protect things, preserve things, care for God's creation, steward it, uh, a message that uh, it it would be super fitting for us and and all of our uh, waste and negligence that we have as as a society currently. There'd be a lot to talk about there. But both of these are used to describe the priestly task in the book of Exodus. What I'm, what the connection I'm trying to make is that their work, all of their life was all worship. So Eden was the sanctuary, and they were to avad and shemar. They were to work, till, cultivate, and they were to keep guard and preserve, and that was worship in the sanctuary. So what you're doing every day to keep guard and preserve God's creation, to cultivate it, to till it up, that is worship. That is communion with God. That's not privatized. That's not spiritualized. That's in your body what you're doing. Number three, covenant relationship is greater than personal relationship. So I have a personal relationship with Sarah. She is my wife. And because of that, I have certain privileges and obligations. I can go and hug my wife anytime. And that there's nothing strange or odd about that. In fact, that's quite great. I should hug my wife. She should know that I love her. And a part of the way that you communicate that is through physical affection a physical touch. Uh, and then I also have Chris's wife, Leslie, is a friend of mine. This is a personal relationship that I have, but it's not like the personal relationship that I have with my wife. If, if there's uh, a time when Leslie and I go for a, the Christian side hug, this is great as friends, but if I just run up and hug her randomly anytime I want to, that would be inappropriate in this personal relationship. But because we're friends and because we do life together, uh, it, it is a thing that we, we do hug one another from time to time. And then you have another personal relationship of mine with a cashier at Fry's. <laughs> and if I go up and hug the cashier at Fry's, they're gonna be super weirded out because that is really inappropriate for the, pers- the kind of personal relationship that we have with one another. They uh, might call security. The very intimidating security at fries. I don't know if you've ever seen them. Uh, so I will not do that. I will refrain. But what what I'm getting at is that personal relationship can mean a lot of different things. It's not always super well defined. But that's often the way that we talk about our relationship with God. Covenant relationship with God is super defined. It helps us understand how we relate to God. And. We, we realize that in a similar way for like Sarah and I, I have privileges and obligations because I'm in this covenant relationship with God, because he's made me a son of his, I have privileges as his son. And I also have obligations as his son. And so do you as a son or daughter. And that is far more concrete and defined than a personal relationship with him. And it is also far more communal. God makes covenant with a people. Now that people is constituted of individuals, but it's not just you on your own. And personal relationship can kind of steer us in that direction of like, if if me and Jesus are doing good, then then it's good. But God has a different vision for this renewal project that He has going on. And it's just and it's not just you and God. It's you and God with a family of others, with a community of other people. <clears throat> Number four it properly relates us to God as uh, covenant lure. Um, so another disadvantage of personal relationship is that it it, it can at times communicate something that's more casual or cause us to think about God and the way he should relate to us in ways that are incomplete at best, and at worst, maybe uh, something that's even, even less biblical. Um, and so, this relating to him as covenant Lord keeps us in this proper relationship with him. God is king, we are his sons, we are also his servants. He is a holy God, and for us culturally, I think covenant is a helpful grounding in that reality where we might take for granted our access to God in the new covenant through Jesus. That is true. There's something very wonderful and special and, and se- to be celebrated about that. But there's also still something very serious about being with God. And so I feel like covenant is a, is a good grounding in that reality. Number five, understanding of promises and commands. We talked about it earlier, so I won't spend a lot of time now, but promises are not offers and they're not guarantees. Promises are to be taken hold of by faith. You are to believe what God has promised, and because you believe, you are going to live in obedience to to the way of life that He's called you to. And in that faithfulness, albeit you know with its ups and downs and its uh, you know uh, brighter moments and darker moments, like you will be a recipient of what God has promised. I, I think here of the Epistle of Hebrews, which recalls. Uh, the people of Israel and their story, right? It so says, remember that they didn't enter into the rest. They were promised rest in the land. Uh, and they weren't faithful, right, on their, their journey on the way there. And what happens? They have the wilderness war, uh, wanderings for 40 years. And, and the author of Hebrews warns us, in the same way, if you aren't bootstrapped in, if you're not ready, if you're not committed, if you're not locked in, like, there's a warning here. Being in covenant relationship with God involves promises, commands, and warnings. God says, Don't go that way. It will cost you. Think of the the Ten Commandments, sometimes called the Ten Words, mostly negative. Do not do this thing. Why is that the case? Because after the rebellion of Adam and Eve, the tendency for all of us is to go in a direction that we're not supposed to. That's our inclination. To go in a, in a direction that we're not supposed to, and that would be destructive for us. And so there's all these warnings. Do not, do not, do not. Not because God is oppressive uh, or would like to take things away from you or is just creating a bunch of rules, but because that is actually a, a, a death-bringing way to live. And God wants to, you to have life and have life to the fullest. So promises, commands, and warnings. Number six is covenant identity. So remember we had talked about Israel's vocation and they, they knew who they were, a holy and royal priesthood, and they were to recall that even in Deuteronomy, there were these covenant renewals where they'd look back on what God has done, remember who they were. Um, I want to think for us like what God is saying to us um, through the signs of the new covenant. And here I'm thinking namely of baptism and the Lord's supper. In baptism, the Lord is saying to us, not just to the person that's being baptized. He's saying to all of us, I love you. Come and follow me. Don't you dare walk away from me. I love you, promise. Come and follow me, command. Don't you dare walk away from me. That's a warning. Promise commands warnings. What is God saying to us about who we are our covenant identity and in the lord's supper we use often the language of the father welcomes you to his table so in the supper maybe a helpful way to think about that of like what is what is god saying to us in that moment he's certainly saying i welcome you saying you are my child but perhaps most important, as we reflect on the sacrifice of Jesus, he's saying, I've made a provision for you to be forgiven, to be cleansed. And I am giving you the power to be made new, to live differently. That in this person and work of Christ, there's this forgiveness of sins, but there's also the gift of the spirit who is a seal of the new covenant. Basically, basically, Uh, A seal is a way of authenticating something that it's, that it's real. It doesn't create the reality, but it says that the reality is actually true. So in the ancient world, they would have sent letters. Kings uh, had to depend on messengers to bring things from afar. And you had to have some way of validating that it was actually from the King. How, like, who is this news from? Is this an actual like command that we should respond to? And the way that they would do that is punch a seal on it. And this is the seal of the King. And it communicates that this is valid and authentic. And for us as the new people of God in the new covenant, the seal of what God has done, the validation of this new work, this new life is the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. The only way for us to be able to be obedient and the way that we were always intended to be is for the divine nature itself to be infused in us, to be given to us, which God does in the gifting of his spirit. Number seven, covenant anchors us in story specifics. So, we have, uh, I feel like if you ask anyone from like the age of three, maybe lower, some kids are amazing, uh, and, and beyond, they will know the six symbols, the six acts of the story, and they'll be able to tell you them for the most part. And this is super helpful for us so that we might have an understanding of the big overarching story through these symbols. But we also need to know the story specifics, the stories within the story. And I think covenant does a good job of anchoring us in those story specifics. These are the stories of what God did all throughout history in specific ways with specific people at a specific time to complete his project of making all things new. Covenant roots us in his story and his word because covenant is all throughout it. And we have a better understanding of, of the, the entirety of the scriptures, but even of the New Testament, where I feel like we, feel, we can feel disconnected from the old, the unity can be found in really important ways through the covenant and really specific ways through the covenant. That's the end of the lecture as far as my part goes. Uh, I know that we're going to have question response time now. Uh, we'll get our mic ready as well and uh, we'll pass it around and if you have questions cool.
2: What other uh, types of transactions were facilitated by covenants? Because I'm assuming Noah and Abraham had some context of what a covenant was when God said, I'm going to make a covenant with you.
0: Yeah. But historically speaking. Yeah. Um, so they would have been common common arrangements between uh, different people, sometimes different governments. Uh a way of I, I would maybe examples from the Bible. There are times. Uh I'm forgetting exact names now, but uh the maybe someone can help me. There's a a group that comes and they see that Israel's making their way through the land, and they're very successful militarily speaking, and they're like, How about you make a covenant with us that we'll be your servants, you don't take us out. Like, and this would have been a common arrangement for people in that time. I mean, it's really helpful to, I think, remember that the world was a much more uh, dangerous place, so a covenant becomes far more important. There are a lot less, we depend a lot on the structures of um, of law and government in a way that we take for granted. We're like, when I get onto the highway, there are certain speed limits and rules, and we've had this, uh, we've gone to school, we passed, we have a license, and we've all agreed to drive this way on the road together. And in that world, there's a lot less of that. And so this, there's a covenant agreement that becomes really helpful and practical for them as they're making arrangements of like, this is how we're gonna do it together to take away unnecessary risk and danger so that they might like, inter- interact in fair ways with one another. Hopefully that's helpful
2: chris we um on the last implication you talked about uh kind of like the true like let's say the true story symbols like the six acts of the biblical story yeah and seeing that as like a framework that we all see and then you had like the six covenants you had up earlier and you're saying hey this might be like i'd love to hear you just argue like crush the symbols in the six acts like is covenant a better way is through these covenants or is it a, a an additional way, a better way, like even just, I'd love yeah. to hear you like make a strong argument for like, this is actually a more biblical way to to think about it.
0: Does that make sense? Yeah. I just love to hear you talk more about that. I think it's helpful. Uh, I don't know that it's a better way. I think additional way is probably what I would lean toward. Um, the The disadvantage is that covenant is very distant for us. So it's super unfamiliar uh, in a way that the symbols don't feel as foreign and as distant. Um, the, the Bible was written to us, but not for us, which means there's often a lot of hard work in like, uh, understanding what originally was going on, so that we might understand what God is trying to say to us today. Uh, and covenant involves, I think, a lot harder work, where I think the beauty of the, story, the six symbols in the story is that it's easy access. I think covenant could have a big payoff, but it also has a big uh, burden to get to the payoff in some respects. Um, I, I've i also heard people argue that it's a bit more muddled. Like there are people who think very differently about covenant. So if you consulted three or four different scholars, you could get three or four different, pretty different views. Um, so there might be some more clarity in the, the six symbols. So I'm pulling for the six symbols uh, uh, that maybe is lost in covenant as well. Uh, I think it's really significant. I think just like anything else, when, when you start developing a theology around something, there's a temptation to to force everything into the way that you're thinking about that particular theme, covenant, temple, et cetera. Then I, I'm saying this about covenant. So then when I look at the, the Noahic covenant, I'm seeing this. And sometimes that can be hard to know when, when you're guilty of that, or you fall in that trap kind of thing. My, I guess my question is mostly related to, I don't remember what slide it was, when you were talking about um, the new covenant with Jesus how jesus becomes like the sacrifice for the covenant that
1: that was required Mm -hmm. so like just hearing that my initial response is like oh like so there's no more punishment or like there's no more like the the debt has been paid in a sense so like Mm -hmm. how do we think through the covenant sac like the covenant sacrifice being paid but also still having to be involved like you were saying by
0: faith and obligation, like how do you how do you balance those two things, like a a sacrifice, but also still being called to something. Hmm. It's an interesting, this is an interesting question that I feel uh, it doesn't feel like it would have been hard for the Jewish people. That's what I was saying in my head when you're asking this question, like sacrifice for them. They, they're in this relationship. Uh, and when they're at their best, they're very grateful for it. And they always know of the obligation. Uh, and when they're at their best, they're grateful and they want to live that way. Uh, and sacrifice was just, it was required so that they might be with God. But I think when you're with God, the, the four stuff is easy. Like if you really are experiencing that, then the, the natural extension is the four part. So I think like the sacrificial setup was, was there so that they might be with God. And Christ comes as the Paschal Lamb so that we might be with God. And being with God, it's it's impo- if that's truly the experience, I think it's almost, if not impossible, to then just say I'm gonna live however I want. I don't know if you're really experiencing the transformational grace of God that's making you new. Um, but yeah, it's a good good question. I I mean, Paul wrestles with that in Romans a bit, right? Uh, where uh, there's a Question. At least I think my memory correct. There's the questions that are right. Uh, shall we sin more because grace abounds? And the answer that he gives is almost sarcastic, though it's hard to feel in, in the biblical text. But right? it's like Paul has a sense of humor and he's like, "That is dumb. Uh, that's just a dumb proposal. No, we're not doing that." That's what it feels like. If if I, if he was being more blunt. Uh, but yeah, I think that life with God by nature, just moves in a certain direction. Richard Bauckham says that blessing is uh, not only experiencing like the goodness of God's gift to us in abundance, which I think is mostly how we think about blessing, or at least that's the first thing that comes comes into our mind, but blessing is also relational. So blessing is not just about getting, receiving, knowing the good gifts, but it's about knowing the generous giver, okay, and so that also because it's relational, uh, what happens is it comes from God to us. And out of that blessing to us, there's an overflow in which we extend blessing to others. And then there's also a sense in which we turn back to God and we bless Him. How do we bless God? And the only way that human beings can, through praise and thanksgiving. So I, I feel like that's a really helpful way of thinking about blessing where it's relational and it's coming from God to us. And then there's that overflow, which I feel like is the for answer. Like, how do you not just take that for granted? I, if, it, if you're really experiencing it, it just, it comes. And then it also goes back to God because you are you're grateful, you're thankful, you're aware of who you're receiving that from. Yeah.
1: Uh, Chris, you talked about um, the covenants. I'm trying to remember how you worded it, but uh, like covenant covenant promises maybe being fulfilled in Jesus. Yeah. Um, And you had a slide on that. So it's really obvious to see like people, right? Jews, there's tons of Jews now, tons of Christians. So people is really obvious to see in Jesus and now, like at Jesus' time and now, um, blessing. Like if you're in Christ, the blessing in that, but then also like as all those who are in Christ drive to, make their world more like the kingdom of God, even the people around them should be blessed. So like people Mm. and blessing is really clear. Can you speak to a little bit of like how land is um, Mm. fulfilled in Jesus, both like at Jesus's time, but then also now, and then maybe if you have time,
0: even like what that looks like future. Yeah. Um, So in, in mission, which I think, I think Mike would, I think he would put a uh, covenant under, under mission, right? I think we'll see. We'll see. I'll, I'll ask him later. Uh, he can tell me if I'm dead wrong, but um, so, because of what God is intending to do in terms of the renewal of all things, uh, he begins this mission and that mission is enacted then through covenants. And but mission in particular, uh, well, it moves from the particular to the universal. So, and that happens both spatially and socially, meaning it, God's mission starts in a particular place. It starts in the promised land in Canaan and Palestine, and it's moving to the ends of the earth. And that you're already getting a sense of that in the old testament of the nations coming to them. And also there's like there are these moments where Gentiles get to be included and the foreigner, like. Even the law itself uh, has a lot of instruction about how we relate to the foreigner in the, in the Old Testament. And so there's already this kind of inclusion it, it, that there's this movement further and further and spatially till the, it, it's reaching the ends of the earth. Uh, and obviously that fulfillment is new creation. And the heavenly city Jerusalem is still there, but it, it's like all of earth. It's no longer just Palestine or Canaan. It's, it's the whole thing. Uh, and the same movement is true like with people, where it starts with a particular person, family, moves into a particular nation, and then like it's doing that so that it might move to the universal. Uh, I, a part of the explanation for that, I think, is, is the problem started in the particular, in terms of Adam and Eve. And the only way for like covenant fulfillment to then take place is in the particular person of Jesus Christ. Uh, and so that's, I think, part of the reason um, for what's taking place there. But I think the the land now, to answer more straightforwardly, is is the whole earth. Uh, in the Beatitudes, Jesus said, uh, blessed are the poor, for they shall inherit the earth. So the inheritance that we have with Christ is, is no longer just one little geographically defined place, uh, but it's, it's now to the ends of the earth.
2: the final one josh so make it a
0: good one hey kevin can i uh uh ask us to do one exercise after josh's closing question yep oh yeah you get to do what i want i've got like three more minutes to do what i want
1: um i'll make my question quick and your answer can be as long as you want um (laughs) thanks josh (laughs) um i i get and appreciate that the new covenant is the one that like I get excited about and like I get to uh, maybe most fully understand because it's what we partake in um, looking at the five that came before that would you say that there or, or what would you say are maybe is a specific thing to look back to that's relevant to today like hey when God made this covenant to Abraham that's helpful to us in 2021 in the like the church today. Is there are there specific things in those covenants that you would like point us toward for help, encouragement, warning, whatever it may be?
0: Shush. Um Josh. <clears throat> uh, so many possible answers that it's hard to choose one. So uh, the Apostle Paul says that all scriptures breathed out by God and and profitable for instruction, right? So that would include all the stuff prior to the new covenant. Uh, So in some sense, the totality of it is, is helpful. Uh, And there are lots of little things within that. I'm going to give maybe one example of something that I've experienced that's super helpful. And that's how we learned and implemented, uh, like a certain understanding of time from the Jewish people. So in covenant with God, When he rescues them from Egypt, one of the first things that's instituted is a way of keeping time. That is to say, they're going to have their months ordered a certain way, and on a certain day in the month, they're going to have this festival, this feast in which they celebrate what God has done to rescue them. They're also going to have this Sabbath rhythm every week, where they're going to do this thing over and over and over again to be formed as God's people, uh, because their whole understanding of time itself is dictated by their experience in life with God. And then, for Christians, we take up uh, a lot of their understanding of time for ourselves, and we have a calendar, and I think it's been something new to me, new-ish, that I've found really helpful, where it's like, I'm in this covenant relationship with God, and that might not feel, at, at surface level, that might not feel super connected to covenant, but it is. It was, and it is. Like, So, Jesus was resurrected on what day? The first day. And, and now, how has our week shifted? we come together as god's people to celebrate the resurrection to be uh, remembering christ to receive from him what we need to live as his faithful people and we do that on sunday the first day of the week that's not coincidental accidental that's intentional and that is forming us as a people the way that you think about time understand time the way that you order the seasons of your life in the same way that the jews ordered the seasons of their life the very weeks of their life so that they might be Uh, like it might be always present to them that they are gods. Uh, For us, like every week is like a, every Sunday is like a little mini Easter. So that at the center of your life, like there's this cycle that you do together with your community that reminds you of who God is and, and what he's done to rescue you and deliver you. It wasn't the Exodus, but it was the cross and the resurrection. And it reminds you of who you are as his son, as a missionary servant, as uh, a faithful image bearer. It reminds you of all these these, these multiple images and it, it sends you out equipped to be uh, a faithful child, uh, a faithful servant. And yeah, there's so much there, but I that's one thing that I've really enjoyed and appreciated and that, that comes from covenant. Um, and there's so much that, Gets pulled forward. Uh, another is, example is law, function, and, and objective in law. So law had a certain function. Biblical law is always contextual, so it was always about what they like in their social, social, historical context. Like the, how are they to relate with one another? Is not it's not to be applied to us in the same way. It had it had a certain function then in that context, but it had it also had an objective. And that objective, I think, can be fairly argued that, that it's transcendent. So in the Mosaic covenant or the Sin- Sinaitic covenant, at the center of that is this law about how they should live together. And the function is foreign to us, alien to us, doesn't apply to us. We are not Israelites. We don't live in Palestine. Uh, we don't. Most of us don't farm. We have a lot of different things going on. But the objective of what they were trying to do, whether that was to protect the weak, in terms of laws for widows and orphans and things of that sort, or to welcome the stranger, those objectives are still true. And they teach us today how to live as God's people in the same way that they were meant to teach the Israelites a long time ago how to live as God's people. So there are things of that sort that are, that are rooted in the covenant that we still can learn from and be shaped by. Uh, for like a few minutes, oops, I uh, hit the wrong button. <laughs> One of my gifts is a uh, incredible ability with technology. Uh just kidding. Um no, what I wanted to do for like 5 minutes together in the same way that you broke out into those groups earlier to talk about life with God and for God and the and you know in Genesis 1 and 2, I wanted to if we can get it back up there slides with the implications for today, like for you to get back in the group. Thanks Kevin, you're the man. Uh and to talk about <laughs> it's all good. Uh to talk about which one of those things stood out to you and like what would you like to to like maybe keep rolling over in your head or put into practice whether that's this weekend or this week was it do you need to get yourself a pair of covenantal shoes? Uh they're great. Um do you like need to focus more on this communion with God? Is it uh like thinking about Covenant relationship versus personal relationship. I don't know, just talk with one another. Um, Yeah, I'd rather end there. Uh, I feel like formation happens in relationship. Q&A is good, uh, but I like that we're in relationship with one another, that we can kind of reflect in that way as well. So back in, um, I'm going to share with you a little section from Exodus 24 in the spirit of Kevin's uh, after-party list namely Gus's fried chicken, cider core, novel ice cream, and uh, a hard word, tap room. I don't remember what it was. It was a funny looking word. That's what I remember. Chupacabra. Chupacabra. there we go. I couldn't remember that. I knew it was goofy looking, that's what I knew. Uh, so in Exodus 24, there's the covenant's confirmed with the Israelites and with Moses. They have this ceremony. You throw some blood on the people. That'd be quite the experience. Um, after this, uh, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the seven, 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against these elders of the Israelites. They saw God and ate and drank quite an experience and it beckons us back to that garden experience, and it calls us forward to the new creation when we will be at the table with God as his people, feasting with one another, and that this fellowship is made possible by the consecration that God offers through the covenant, through them with the sacrifice, which eventually becomes Jesus, that there's a cleansing that takes place so that they can be with God again. And in the Gospels, we see when Jesus is out and about doing his thing, like one of the stories is the lady reaches out, she touches Jesus, and she's healed of her affliction. She's no longer bleeding, and she's cleansed. This picture of what God is doing in Jesus to cleanse us so that we might have fellowship with him and with one another. Let me pray for us, and then maybe some of us will enjoy eating and drinking together with God. So, Father, we... Thank you for your great grace toward us in Jesus. That even though you are covenant keeper and covenant king, you would take on the covenant curse that was rightfully ours. That it would be your blood that was shed so that we might be forgiven. That we might be made new. We ask that you just give us eyes to see how you are continuing to meet us uh, in the day-to-day things. Uh, in the regular rhythms of life. However, you are with us, and because you are with us, making us more and more like Jesus, you are also equipping us to be your faithful servants. You send us out. I thank you for this family. Uh, ask that you give us grace with one another in the same way that you have been gracious with us. And that this might be a testimony to the world of a new way to do life together. May we bear much fruit by the power of your Spirit. These things we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.